none of our courses are uh, classroom based. You know, the world doesn't work that way and neither does leadership. So uh, deliberately our courses are, are experientials. G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Episode 18, wow. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and thanks for joining me as I share these conversations during a pretty unique time in our lives. One thing I've loved over the last few weeks is the people from all walks of life that have been reaching out to me, asking more about agriculture and particularly those with city backgrounds that may not know a way in. It's bloody cool, and if you do want to know more about it, please reach out. I'm more than happy to chat. I thought I'd take the chance to jump back to a chat I had for the Future Farmers Network Mentor of the Month podcast earlier this year. I'm on the board there and the Future Farmers Network is an organisation for young people in agriculture. Anyway, I was talking with Matt Linniger and we're chatting about leadership, mentoring, purpose and just generally Matt's journey. I really enjoyed listening back to this conversation. Not only is Matt a ripping fella, but he offers some incredibly sound advice that just rings true and I think everyone can take something out of it. The conversation highlights Matt's passion for the industry and how understanding what impact he wanted to have really drove his career forwards. Matt's relationship-based approach is very relatable. From the front line of issues such as the Murray-Darling Basin Plan to the Cattle Live Export Ban, Matt was the CEO of the National Farmers Federation and now he works in some of the most remote communities in Australia and overseas as part of his role as the CEO of the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation. Matt's a strong supporter of leadership development as a critical factor to the success of regional, rural and remote Australia. This chat's a bit of fun and it is a little bit different to normal, so I thought I'd start it off by asking Matt who'd play him in a movie of his life. Anyway, Matt, it's great to have you here. Good on you. Thanks, Ollie. Now, this one's a big question. In a movie about your life, who would play you? <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Who would play me in a movie about my life? Matthew McConaughey. Jeez. That's a good one. Yeah. I'd like to think that anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah, I think so. I think so. I would have said Matt too, actually. There you go. Yeah. There we go. go. He'd have to do an Australian accent, though. I'm not sure he's up for it. Can you give us an all right, all right, all right, all right? No, no, no I can't. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Although he's a, he's a he's a bourbon drinker and I'm I'm a Scotch drinker, but that's okay. Okay, I'll put up with that. Minor details. Yeah. All right. So jumping into a map, um, you've had a pretty extensive career. You've moved from representative roles um, in industry. You've been, I suppose, at the front of some pretty contentious issues, but now you you find yourself really focused around leadership and people um, relating to rural yep. Australia. What is it that's getting you out of bed at the morning and, and what do you look forward to each day about your job? Look, I'm in a really fortunate position, Ollie, that um, you know, my job and everything about it uh, gets me out of bed each day and uh, I'm excited to, to do what I'm doing uh, every day in one way, shape or form. Uh, my, my world is about um, doing what I can to support others to act, support others to you know, to, to continue to grow. And so, you know, it, it is, it's exciting work. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, worthwhile uh, work. And so it's, it's very easy to get out of bed each day. That's, that's what, that helps me get going. Um, 
for sure. I love what I'm doing. And, um, you know, of course, the family are always very important and always remain pretty central. But I'm very fortunate to be in a role. Um, yeah, well, well, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And I guess, you know, what I've always said to, uh, to people for what it's worth in my time is to try and find things that you can be passionate about doing. If you're, if you're just going to work for the money or you're going to work for the power or the, or the prestige, you know, that's going to run thin pretty quickly. So um, not everyone is fortunate enough to, to be doing something they're, they're passionate about doing. And all I would say is I've always tried to find things that, that I either am passionate about or feel that I could be. And um, this is definitely one of those roles. And so for you, when did, when did, you, when did it kind of click that you were passionate about rural Australia and agriculture and people? Yeah, well, as you know, Ollie, I, I grew up in Sydney, which seems a bit weird um, to, to be pursuing that career. But to be honest, mate, um, you know, I reckon I knew when I was about 10, which, which again sounds strange. Um, but, you know, my exposure to, you know, my dad's hometown of Tamora, even though he wasn't off the farm, um, you know, relatives and friends down there were. And, you know, my mum's family's um, Croatian, but her, her brother left Chatswood on a train at 15 and ended up being a jackaroo in Roma and he was Australia's only, uh, Australia's only Croatian cowboy. So um, he ended up in the mid-north coast of New South Wales at, um, in the upper Maclay Valley between Kempsey and Armidale. And uh, he bought that place about then when I was about uh, eight or nine or something like that. So, yeah, just the exposure to that, I, I developed a passion for it and it wasn't one that faded. It just kept going. So, yeah, I reckon I knew when I was about 10. Yeah, cool. I actually reckon I had the same kind of, well, I had the same growing, growing up in Sydney, but it was through um, mum's sister and their farm as well. So, yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Did you ever find, coming, being a, a city boy growing up, that there was a barrier coming into industry? Do you, do you still get it where you feel like an imposter and you know where your, your roots are? I don't. I don't really get it. Um, I did. I certainly did get it. Um, you know, it was interesting and ironic that at a time when um, I guess the agricultural industry and more broadly rural communities were definitely trying to stem, stem the flow of, um, you know, of young people, particularly out of their own regions. Uh, at that time, there were people like myself, later on yourself and others, who, who were part of the tide wanting to go back the other way. So it was rather ironic that some, you know, barriers were put up, but yeah, none of those were insurmountable. Most, most of the ones I struck were to test you, you know, like because I'd, I'd worked on a, on a number of places as a young fella and a teenager, you know, if I went to somebody's place and they want to test you, so I'd go and string that fence or go and do this or whatever. And once, once you showed you could do it, that was it, you know, the, the barriers were down and off you went. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about having a crack, isn't there? I think that's one of yeah. the biggest thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, but also to, yeah, I, I guess some people might have found the whole thing a bit, a bit clicky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you hadn't had the experience or, or speak the language. So, 
are you in or out? But you know, I don't, I don't think any of that was impenetrable. You know, um, and um, you know, with a bit of confidence and a bit of self belief, off you, off you're off and running. And you know, I think there's a lot of people who've grown up in in urban areas who who are very strong contributors to to agriculture and and rural and regional Australia more broadly. So I don't think it'd stop too many people. Yeah, and do you think, so we hear this city-country divide piece, but is, does it light a fire in you about, you've grown up in the city, so you you know what it's like on that side of the fence, you've come across yeah. somewhere where you're so passionate. Yeah, have you got, is it a fire burning in you that you hear it and you're just like, it's not a divide, for instance, or you be like, we just need to, it's a, a small step to get over. And, and I think we've seen no, recently. Yeah, look, I'm passionate about it and, I, and you know, Anyone has been and unfortunate enough to be in in my uh, radius when that when that subject comes up knows about it. You know, I, I keep saying to people that there's a couple of things about it. Firstly, it's almost entirely a construct in the minds of people from rural Australia. It's not it's not a thing that's really in the minds of people in urban Australia, and that's not because they're uh, they're against rural Australia or they're they're putting up some sort of barrier. It's mainly from a point of view of not being on their radar, so to speak. You know, so we keep we keep describing it as a divide, and it will become one. Um, so I keep saying to people, stop, stop calling it a divide. All we're trying to do is create greater connections, relationships, and understanding between between rural Australia and and, and urban Australia. And you know, there's a multitude of ways we can do that. But but we also need to get out of the mindset of we've just got to educate them. You know, if they just know enough facts about what we do and how bloody important we are, then they'll all be more appreciative of us. We need, we need to reverse that mentality. And let's not forget that, you know, around about 80% of Australians live in, live in urban centres, and I think 85% cling to within 50 k's of the coast. So, and that's only going one way at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm really hoping, and, and there's a number of people working on the opposite, so making rural and regional Australia a more attractive place to, place to live. But bashing urban people over the head about how important we are is not the way to go about it. So let's understand what's important to them and in their worlds, and let's seek to make connections between what's important to us and what's important to them. And there's plenty of them. So I just think we need to change the, the language, stop talking about ourselves in deficit, um, and, and, and have a more positive outlook uh, about that, that relationship and you know getting on with each other absolutely no i like that and absolutely 100 percent agree in terms of it was funny um a couple of years ago when i did the short course with you guys but yeah one of the conversations i had it was with a mate who's from finley and he yep. was saying that he wouldn't put himself forward because of that uh or i suppose the fear of being shot down as such yeah and so for young people who who are our listeners, they're our members as well. But what do you say and what needs to change in terms of the, the stepping up from, from everyone in the industry, not just waiting for a select few? Yeah, well, look, all, all of that starts um, with the individual. Yeah, we can all sit there and, and blame it on somebody else, you know. So I won't go to that meeting because those couple of old fellas, you know, are going to cut me off at the knees every time I stand up or I'm, 
you know, uh, I'm in this meeting and, and that particular older woman's not happy with me or what I'm saying, you know, so, you know, that's what I'd say to people is, you know, look to yourself first, what's holding you back. And you might say it's my level of confidence. Well, dig a bit deeper. What, what's driving that, you know, that, that lack of confidence. And, and people might find that that's about, um, that might be about public speaking. That might be about the fact that they're not uh, sure or got their head around uh, all the facts. So what's, what's the driver for the behavior and, and look to that first, resolve that within yourself, talk about it to people, you know, you know and trust or, or, or mentors as we, we're talking about today. Uh, you know, and, and so I'd just say, look to yourself, stop blaming other people, understand the drivers of your behaviours and look to address those. Yeah, great. And so, yeah, you just touched on it, mentoring. So that is what, uh, what it's all about. And your advice so far has been really good. Um, what is mentoring? How does it work? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things these days, isn't there? But, um, you know, there's mentoring, then there's coaching, and then there's, you know. But, but really, men mentoring is... Um, yeah, it's it's more than just a shoulder to lean on or or someone to have a yarn to. Um, it certainly involves some deeper levels of trust. So to just you know walk off the street and say you know Matt, can you be my mentor or Ollie, you know, can you be my mentor is you know probably not going to work that well because you know it, it's all based it is all based on trust. Uh, trying to connect people with other people that could become their mentors is a good thing. But remember, it's, it's, it's not a panacea. It won't just work every time. And those two people would need to spend some time together to build, build those levels of trust before, you know, before that relationship bore any fruit in terms of, uh, in terms of mentoring. So uh, it is not coaching and it is not, uh, I'm going to go and see Matt and I, you know, I just want his opinion and his advice on, on, on everything. Uh, as I said, it takes trust. It is to weigh um, being a good, understanding how to be a good mentee is important as it is to be how, how to be a good mentor. And remembering, of course, that if that trust in that relationship develops to, uh, to an extent, um, then it can be also two-way. So, you know, I've, I've got a number of mentors um, that I turn to from time to time. You know, some of them got to the stage where they're, they're saying to me, Matt, why are you continuing to call me? And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And they said, well, you've gone past me. I said, I don't understand. They said, well, look, you're now more developed than I am, so why are you asking me about why are you, why are you floating things from me? And I said, look, you know, I, I totally disagree with what you're saying. It's not about where I am in my positional leadership. It's the fact that I trust you. I value your opinion. I know that you're not going to sugarcoat, you know, when I'm asking you about something. So that deep level of trust means uh, often you can be, you can be brutally but constructively honest with each other. And it's really important that a, um, that a mentor can feel as though that they can, you know, call your behaviours for, for what they see, not just someone to pump your tyres up. So, and look, ideally, a mentor in a conversation with a mentee 
will say very little. Will say very little. So, um, you know, and as a mentor, um, you you do and you can become more skilled at at this art, and that is um, to ask to say little, to ask fewer questions, um, but to ensure that those questions are are the right ones. In other words, to that that lead that lead to a mentor coming to their own conclusions about what they're raising and, and not you coming over the top and saying it should be done this way or that. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. So uh, there's a few things I think about that relationship and how it should work. And have you ever, I suppose, the young people that are coming through and they're, they're in that position where they're, they're looking for their mentor, but there's obviously, as you say, there's got to be that element of trust in it. Have you had times where you've either declined someone as a mentor or, or as a mentee or, or been declined? Been declined? Both, both. Yes, I have. Um, so I've certainly approached a couple of people who, you know, for various reasons, felt that wasn't going to work, um, and are pretty open about what those reasons were. Fine, and um, you know, I've had to, I've had to say to a few people that I don't think I'm, I'm the right person, and again, for for a range of reasons, and I certainly uh, wouldn't take that on if I felt my time was pretty chalked up. And, you know, if I felt I couldn't give them the time that was necessary, I'd say that up front as well. Yeah. And so how often for someone in your shoes, do you, how do you manage that time? Is it a big commitment to be a mentor or mentee? I think it's just recognising uh, what the needs of that mentee um, are, you know, when, and establishing that up front. So, you know, you, you could have somebody who uh, feels that they need some mentoring, but quickly... You know, you, you agree to, you know, chat to them once a month or something like that. Uh, and after the first conversation, and this has happened to me before, you realise there's a lot more going on there <laughs> than either you or perhaps they realise. You know, and, and sometimes that you can look at that and go, you know what, mate, um, uh, you need some help that I can't provide, for instance. Um, and, and, and it's best to, to try and point them in that right direction and stay with them until, you know, until they, they're able to seek that help, whatever that help is. So, yeah, that can happen. And, and I think otherwise, yeah, do we know each other? We're going to know. For instance, let's take the example where you don't. You're looking for a mentor. There's no one really close to you that you can think of who might fit the bill and you're wanting to go into a career in whatever it is. And, you know, someone comes to me saying, well, a lot of things I want to do look like the pathway you've trodden. So, um, you know, would you would you consider it? So, 
if I felt I had the time, then the first thing I'd do is catch up with them um, for, for a coffee or whatever it happens to be, maybe two or three times, um, at least even before we'd agreed to anything moving forward. Because, you know, without a baseline of trust, it, it, gets, it gets pretty tough. So, yeah, then, then, I'd, then, then you'd understand where they are and, and what sort of time they need, and, and then you'd make a commitment. Well, that's really good advice. Thanks for that. So, so starting out for you, we're, we're looping back to the early days. So maybe a bit of self-reflection on some of those early mentors. But at 24, you took on a pretty big role. You were tasked with being the marketing coordinator for Southeast Asia for what was then the Australian Meat and Livestock Corporation, but now MLA. And how did the challenges of that with a young guy in quite a traditional industry, how do you approach that? What did you have any kind of oh shit moments and who was there to help you at those periods of time? Oh yeah, I had a lot of oh shit moments, I think, uh, to be fair. And look, I, I, for, for me, and look, this is one thing that, you know, while there are always things you change about, about the way you've gone about things, you know, the one thing that stuck with me, and I think it's just been, uh, I think it's been a natural part of my approach from quite quite a young age and so I've been very fortunate that, that I'd, for whatever reason that's part of my makeup part of my DNA so I've always valued relationships really highly and I've always been people focused and that's held me in pretty good stead in every role I've had and certainly in that role you know understanding understanding the market understanding the people be they Australian um, uh, producers, processors, exporters, uh, and of course, you know, importers, retailers, butchers, uh, food service outlets through through Southeast Asia. You know, I quickly worked out that, particularly in those markets, it's totally about it's all about relationships. So, you know, you there's plenty of hard nosed businessmen on, and business women on at both ends, um, but but absolutely in Asia, relationships are valued highly. So. You know, I know, well, you know, you know, we, you know, we've been heavily involved in Indonesia in the last five years and now heading to Vietnam this year as part of the, the ARLP. You know, I always say to participants over there, what Australians tend to do and is go to, go to a place like that, meet, meet a person or contact for the first time, uh, exchange business cards, go back, send an email and say, we want to do business and then wonder why no emails are coming back. Well, firstly, in Indonesia, unless you're on WhatsApp, they're probably not going to get a response. Um, and secondly, unless I've sat down with that person two or three times, nothing's going to happen anyway. So relationships and a trust are important. So um, that was fortunate. And I was really fortunate that uh, there were a number of uh, AMLC in those days, MLA these days, um, employees in each of those uh, Southeast Asian countries who were the on-ground presence, uh, did a lot of the organising, point of sale material, kept, main, kept relationships going. You know, uh, they were all, in my case, they were all women and all absolutely dynamic and fantastic. And, you know, I, I count two of those still as good friends today and we're, we're still in contact. So, you know, I was very fortunate that I was able to, well, to lean on those uh, those relationships in terms of, getting to know the markets, the people, the products and all that sort of thing. 
Uh, and then, of course, my role very much was to uh, to support them in the best way I could for them to, to act and be the best they could in those markets. So that was the approach I took, and and um, you know, luckily it you know it worked pretty well. And then, so the learnings from that being so people focused. What did you take then into the role with the National Farmers Federation as you took over as CEO in, I suppose, what was a very volatile time and then now even still in agriculture? What are the learnings that you've been able to hold since then? Yeah, look, I, look as I said to you, that having that people focus or relationships focus in any role, anywhere, in any industry, oh, I just think is so, so important. People think, well, you guys, you guys would know this, and and your members would know this as well. You know, how often, how often do, you know, the, I guess the facts, you know, uh, what's known about the the facts and the market and whatever and whatever else is, how often do they win the day in terms of, you know, uh, progress, a decision going your way, etc. And how often is that about uh, people and relationships? Well, I'd argue. People, relationships, emotion, you know, all the people-centered stuff. You know, I'd argue nine times out of ten, it's about, you know, it's about the people. So, uh, you know, I think that's really important. I think when I started at, at NFF, I, you know, I, I was for the first year I was there, I was here without my family. My family was still in, in Griffith, New South Wales, and so it was sort of a double-edged sword because I absolutely buried myself in in the work, and you know, I was working. Yeah, well, I was working 12-hour days most most days, um, and you know I wanted to I wanted to bury myself in it. I wanted to be across absolutely all the issues that the the NFF was touching and have depth in them, not just be skimming across the surface. I'm really glad I did it in a way because when it came to later on and and you had to dig deep at a uh, you know at a Senate committee or whatever happens happens to be, it, it held me in good stead. But I, you know I think. You know, I soon realised that if I kept doing that to the detriment of the other stuff, which is what are the relationships you need to build? Firstly, with uh, with your own membership, uh, with farmers and, and with the industry, and then secondly, of course, with everyone else involved from, from the hill to, you know, to, to other groups. So, yeah, so I, I, I bury myself in, in the detail and uh, that's not normally my, you know, I have a strong focus on people and relationships and I, I realise that, you know, you got to be able to walk and chew gum. So, uh, you know, don't lose sight of don't lose sight of the people. And um, yeah, that's understanding that, and and, and what influence um, actually means in the end is going to be as as or more important than unfortunately for the for the policy wonks. <laughs> unfortunately, more than the the, the policy itself. And so going from, you've shifted roles somewhat in being very farmer focused, water trade, um, to leadership. What is, how did the dynamic shift and has, has it evolved more so moving away from agriculture or has it changed your views on rural Australia and the communities that are part of that? Uh, I don't know if it's changed my, my views so much. I mean, obviously, um, yeah, my focus is, has broadened to you know rural and regional and remote Australia, you know more broadly, um, and all of its sectors and industries, you know not not, not just one. Um, you know I, I think 
Well, look, I, to be honest, I see some, I see some pretty worrying signs, you know, and I think they are about what's happening to 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 people and and communities, and I think, um, you know, some of the some of the approach and you know the the leadership approach that we were taking on on some of those big and critical issues in connected to the world of agriculture. Um, I think on some fronts are still going really well. On other fronts, they're, they're really starting to fray the edges. So, I mean, you know them. I mean, um, you know, obviously the Murray-Darling is a, is a massive one. Uh, up in Queensland, you could look at, you could look at the, the Barrier Reef and issues around that. And, of course, more recently, the, uh, the bushfires, which has been a, ends up, end up being quite a polarising debate uh, across Australia generally, not just in rural and regional Australia. So, have I taken a different view of of agriculture? Uh, no, I, I, in in a sense, it's still it's it's an it's an industry um, that's that's working hard to to look forward and and grasp those opportunities that that, that might be coming our way. Um, you know, it's always. There's plenty of good examples uh, of, of people working together. The hardest thing, the hardest thing to do anywhere, anytime, is to truly collaborate on anything. You know, people say, "Well, we're collaborating on this," but you know, I've sat in plenty of meetings where where people have given almost nothing and and believe they walk away saying, "We we collaborated with that other group." Well, no, no, you didn't really. You you know, you got the best deal you could could out of it for yourself. So collaboration requires. Uh, actually giving something, uh, not just taking. So I think uh, that can be tough in, in the world of agriculture and some parts of agriculture find it tougher than, than others. So, you know, the, the self-interest dominates uh, over, over the, the greater good. So I think that's still a challenge. I think that's still a challenge uh, for agriculture. And, you know, on some fronts, I, you know, I see that going well, and on another front, you know, a lot of self-interest is is dominating. So, um, yeah, that's I, I guess reflecting and looking back, that's something that I've seen anyway. Yeah, and I suppose it is. There is just that competition with the neighbours, isn't it? If they grow a five-ton crop and you're only growing a three-ton crop, it's not going to change the world prices, is it? It's um, but we're so stuck looking inwards when it comes to these things. Yeah, we can we can be, um, and you know I think that sort of in, that sort of inspired leadership that we uh, we look to, you know that those that sort of leadership isn't going to de to deliver um, everything the self interested party wants. Ultimately, it's that sort of leadership that finds a path through. Um, that ultimately is is doing the right thing, the best thing for the industry as a whole. Um, and that might upset, you know, individuals and, and certain groups uh, with, within the sector. That's inevitable. Um, but that's what comes with um, being focused on, that's what leadership is. You know, ultimately, unless you're acting in the interest of the greater good, you're not leading. Yeah. You're not leading. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a cheerleader for, for self-interest. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because it's been quite polarising, hasn't it, recently? Basically, just, just this year alone, you look at those people who have 
moved into official leadership roles and where they sit. And then you see people like Grace Brennan with that buy from the bush campaign. And she's, well, she had described herself as just an ordinary person. Um, but what she has done is just absolutely extraordinary for, for rural Australia, isn't it? Well, look, absolutely. And, and, and we would say every day that, that leadership's not positional. Yep. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't come with the title. Um, there can be, there, there can and there are absolutely fantastic leaders with titles, don't get me wrong. Um, but the title doesn't bestow leadership on you. Um, that's something that's demonstrated in your behaviours, in the way you act, in the way you treat other people and support other people to act. You know, that's where it stems from and, and that's where respect comes from and not from the title. So you're absolutely right. Uh, it can, it should and it will continue to come from anywhere. Uh, and it won't be restricted to people with titles. And is that for, for the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation, is that for you guys, you're obviously focused on rural Australia, but is there, is there traits and qualities in people from these areas that exacerbate their potential for leadership? You know, yeah, we, we would say that leadership's not based on traits. Hmm. Uh, some people would argue that you would have heard and, and your listeners would have heard that that person, uh, that man, that woman, they're a born leader. So they've they've got a set of traits they're born with, and that enables them to lead. Yeah, yeah, I sort of call bullshit on that one. Um, yes, people are born with with certain traits, and that may that may assist them in certain ways. But there are no born leaders. All leaders are made and shaped in some way, shape, or form. Um, and really it's going to, you know, ultimately that will rest more heavily on, on their own behaviours, um, their relationships and the effect that both of those things have on, on their influence than it will on the fact that I'm, I'm more extroverted or outgoing than you are, therefore I'm going to be a better leader. Well, that's not true. And, um, you know, I see plenty of examples day in, day out, um, of good and, and, and not so good extroverted leaders and the same with introverted ones. So I don't, it's not trade-based in my view. And so through the courses that you guys run, you, you focus a lot on experiential learning, being able to bring that back into to everyday life. Can you just give us a bit more insight into that and, and why the courses are shaped that way? Yeah, no, no problems at all. And, and um, you know, for us, um, None of our courses are uh, classroom-based. They're not a didactic experience where we're going to teach you something um, and you just got to memorise that and be able to spit it back out and then you become a better leader. You know, the world doesn't work that way and neither does leadership. So uh, deliberately, our courses are, are experiential. So uh, they're designed so that we put a, a range of experiences in, in front of participants uh, and provide them enough, I guess, uh, tools, if you like, to to be able to reflect on those experience experiences, and and, and make greater sense, firstly of themselves and their own behaviours, and then the, the ability to uh, change and modify their own behaviours given a change in context. And we know um, leadership happens in different contexts, from from home to 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 your workplace, to industry, to community, to, to the national level. Uh, so, so that's the first thing. 
and you know, and and of course that that experiential learning uh, doesn't sort of start and stop. Well, you've had your experience now. Now we'll move on to some other form of learning. It's a continuous cycle. So we put experiences in front of people, help them to make sense of those experiences in their own context and in terms of their own behaviours. And maturity and growth as a leader is about being able to uh, understand those, modify your own behaviours, uh, understand other people a lot better than you do now. Um, and from that stems um, the sort of influence um, that, that, you know, really um, marks good leadership. So um, experiential learning, that's, that's why we design it the way we do. And, and of course, uh, the more experiences, some of them, some of them, you know, euphoric and some of them absolutely horrifying for, for people. Um, so and everything in between. But ultimately, people come to understand that life is just a range of experiences. And ultimately, you can start thinking about them as that and not separating them into good and bad. You know, uh, they, they all have meaning. You can learn something from all of them and they start to shape you as well. Um, so, yeah, so if life's like, like that, then our program should be like that as well. It's a pretty powerful approach, isn't it? Kind of breaking down that, the barrier that exists for just saying it's either good or bad, but being able to utilise that as an opportunity. It's very yeah, optimistic. They're all, yeah, they're all experiences. And, and you know, you know did, did you critically reflect and what did you learn from all of them? And, you know, for some there's going to be great learning, some perhaps not as much, but there'll be something in all of them. Okay, so following on from, I suppose it touches a little bit on a, a few different things we've talked about, and it's something I've only just come across recently, but it's this concept of reverse mentoring. And I suppose um, you know the, the approach that a few groups I've been involved are in, and at the Future Farmers Network, we're always talking about mentoring, and I suppose as young people in industry, we feel we need to get a seat at the table. And similar to how you described mentoring is a, is as much about two-way and trust. Is are we potentially taking the wrong approach to how we see our involvement in industry? Do we need to extend an invite actually back to industry and say, well, hang on a minute, guys, come to our table for a minute and let's have a chat here instead? Well, that's the way mentoring should work anyway, Ollie. So um it's, I wouldn't even call it reverse mentoring. It's just a part of mentoring. So, okay. so you know, the, the industry, you know, and, and, and different groups and, uh, and positional leaders in, in, uh, in industry have as much to learn uh, from, from you and your members uh, as, as they do, you know, from more senior people, I guess. Um, and, you know, if, if the industry is going to, you know, if they're going to make, you know, 100 billion by 2030 or, or better, you know, all the, all the sort of targets that are out there that we, that we want to attain and, in a, in a, you, know, you know, obviously the, the, re, the recent uh, conditions, particularly through most of Australia, are going to make that, that tough in the short term. Uh, then firstly, we need to engage uh, younger people. Secondly, we need to understand what's driving them understand uh, their grasp of certain technologies uh, and, you know, a ch changing, changing social landscape 
are going to be really important to to the sector. It's not just about, you know, we've got to get out of our heads that, oh, yes, we just need to attract these people in and, you know, and give them jobs or create jobs for them. It's not just about that. Uh, it ultimately, you know, Australian agriculture to compete on the world stage, it becomes a it becomes a contest of of ideas as well. And unless you're engaging uh, younger people in, in that scenario, then you know you know you're going to cut yourself short. So, so I, I'd say definitely yes. And it's not just inviting a group to come to your table, so to speak. Um, it's also what should be happening uh, within organisations and industries um, on a regular basis. So it's both. Okay. And so you mentioned in that, obviously, we're going to have some challenges over the next few years. And we've got challenges right now. We don't have to look too far yeah, to see that. But what's, I suppose, some of the best advice you've either been given or you've experienced in terms of how you actually deal with setbacks and keep your head above water and, and be able to keep that momentum to keep going? Yeah. Um, just trying to think about, the, about some advice I've received on that front. I'll sort of... Yeah, I think I'm able, I've just been able to overcome setbacks um, okay. You know, I've had some bigger ones and some smaller ones. But I think um, being focused on on the outcome and the impact is really important. So you can say that what is the impact I want to have? By the way, that was a, that was a switch that flipped in my mind not until I was about 30. Okay. I reckon. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, say from late teenagers through the twenties, my mind was more focused on what's the next job, what's the next job uh, that, that I want to have and where. And really around thirty, and that was a conversation, you know, with someone more experienced than me. He just absolutely hammered me on. He said, "Well." You know, Matt, where where do you want to have impact? You know, so that he just kept asking me the same question until I thought about it a bit more, and that flipped a switch in my head. So I stopped thinking. I did stop thinking about the job as the first port of call and started thinking about the impact. What's the impact I want to have? Right up. On what stage? There's no right answer. You could be very local, or organisational, or you could be national. You know, for me at 30, it was, I, I want to have an impact on a national stage and I want to do that for the farm sector. It took another 10 years, but that's, that's where I ended up. So, so being focused on the impact also helps overcome some of the setbacks because you can say, yeah, righto, that, that particular thing I was doing did not go so well. And if you've got the tools to really criti critically reflect on why it didn't go so well, um, that's helpful. And the first, just a little bit of advice I'd give to anyone on that front is critical reflection always starts with yourself. Most people go away and they say, listen, I was in this meeting today and geez, it went really badly. And I, I'd, ask, I'd say, okay, reflect on that. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, most people naturally would say, well, it didn't go well because of all these other people. And all I'd say to someone is always start with yourself. What did you do? What were your behaviours today? How did they impact other people? Uh, and what, what effect did that have on the ultimate outcome? And then start thinking about the other stuff. So, but anyway, my point is that if you're still 
your trajectory is still towards the impact you want to have, then it's just a minor blip. It's a minor setback on the way. It's not, it's not stopping you from where you want to go. Um, so keeping the bigger picture in mind and, and starting with a focus on your own behaviours and what effect that had on the setback, you know, uh, I think there are two things that give pause for thought and, and probably give you a little bit more perspective on how bad it actually was. That's good. So mindful, I suppose, of, of a little bit of time, um, yeah, of the time we've got left. Um, yeah. You're quite involved as well and, and I'm guessing have been the whole way through your career in terms of not only having impact and purpose in or in work now, but then also your involvement in other community groups and on boards. How, how do you manage the split and the commitments it takes, or, and, and even with mentoring? to be able to fit all these things in and then also be able to spend time with where it really matters back with your family as well. Yeah, I think they'd probably say sometimes really poorly, Ollie. I think you know, the family. Um, they gave me that question. No, I'm Yeah, no, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. Um, so, so, again, it, I don't want to harp on it, but so I, I understand the impact I want to have and where. And once I understood that, um, there's there's another level of understanding, which is I know I'm never going to quite get the balance right. You know, I'm getting better at it, um, but I'm never going to quite get it right. And if, you, if you're doing what you're doing and in various leadership roles, you know, don't sugarcoat it for yourself. You, you, know, you need to look at yourself and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give more uh, than I'm often going to get. So just understanding that upfront is really important. Trying to manage your, yeah, so, so being aware of what you're capable of and, you know, ultimately your own body will tell you if you're getting that right or not. You know, people, people don't crash over uh, ill for no reason. So sometimes your, your body just says, well, you're stopping whether you want to or not. That's happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> not particularly proud of it, but it has happened to me. But um, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, be aware of your own energy and what uh, you've got to give a lot of energy. So, so where you're gonna, where's the well you're going to draw from to, to gain the energy? So getting that balance is, is pretty important. Um, and then for me, it's um, understanding that I do, I do want to have impact at multiple levels. So I'm president of my, my little community association and the place I live, 30 k's out of Canberra. Um, you know, as you said, I'm on a on a couple of boards where I'm contributing back to uh, both the sector and and, and other causes um, uh, in in those respects, and of course doing my my work here at the at the foundation. So and and mentoring and being mentored, so all, all at the same time. So um, for me, it helps to I try and break down days and, and weeks a little bit about where I'm going to spend that time and where my energy levels lie. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what people do when they go into their, their day jobs and offices, but I never start the day looking at emails, ever. Um, I try and do all my uh, creative thinking uh, in the morning. Um, if I'm mentoring, I, I need to hive away enough space for that that to happen and that's got to happen at 
Uh, it's got to be mutually convenient, but for me, I'm trying to make it happen when I can get my head totally out of my workspace because that's not helpful for the, for the mentee. Um, and the poor old community association do have to put up with me <laughs> sort of not, not being on deck 100% you know, of the time, but they know where, where I can offer my best energy and help and that works for them as well. So you've got to work with other people too uh, around, around that input that you can have. So, yeah, so I guess trying to manage my time on a, on a daily, weekly um, and, and longer term basis, get the energy balance as right as you can. So that's where you're drawing energy from and where you're, where you're expending it. Uh, not trying to do something that requires your deep thought and 100% focus at a time when you're not 100% focused. Um, you know, and then yeah, I, I guess they're the main things for me and try how I try and manage my time. It, and just understand you won't always get it right. Um, and also understand you're likely if you're that sort of contributor, to give more energy than you're going to get, as long as it doesn't get too much out of way. Yeah, cool. No, that's good. I'm, uh, I'll start it tomorrow. No, it is, it's one area that I've found that I've kind of, yeah, certainly don't have the balance and you, you're trying to grow your career, you're trying to be involved where, and have, imp well, yeah, I suppose impact like you say, and it's um, the fine line, I think. So. Yeah, well, what, what's it? Everyone's different, right? So what's the time of day? All I'm saying to you is if, um, you know, if you're going into any of these sort of, these sort of roles and you want to lead as a young person, um, you, you, as you go up the chain, so to speak, you're going to spend a lot less time doing stuff and you're going to spend a lot more time uh, with and focused on people and, and strategy and thinking, you know, that, so, you know, people say to me, they get into management positions and go, you know, I'm spending 70 or 80% of the time just working with people. I said, and that's absolutely right. That's what you should be doing. It's not just spending time with them. It's also supporting them to act and be the best they can be. The point about the time management is, yeah, you, for you, Ollie, it might be 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's when you're most active. So do all your strategy, do all your critical thinking, do all your stuff then. For me, I've got to do it in the morning. Yeah. No, thank you. Thanks for joining me for episode 18. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to share this time each week with you. If you jump over to our Instagram at humansofagriculture underscore, you can keep an eye on upcoming guests and our general content. It's a little bit of fun, a little bit insightful, but it's 100% human. Anyway, look after yourself and I look forward to chatting to you next week.